Welcome to the Present and Sober podcast with your hosts, Sam Goldfinch and Ellie Crow. If you want to make your life bigger, not smaller, then this is the podcast for you. If you can sense that you're destined for more and you're curious about how drinking could be holding you back, listen in and come on this journey with us. Through the interplay of mind and body practices, we will help you elevate your daily life and discover the wonder and potential of going alcohol free. Let's make life bigger together. Hey team, okay, first thing, dun 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 it is officially the 100th episode of the Present and Sober podcast. 100 weeks? How did that happen? And uh, yeah, so look, the, thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much. And I know on behalf of Ellie and all of the guests and anyone like the amount of people that have reached out and said their lives have been touched or changed by what's happening here is just, it's just amazing. It's so amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I can't believe that we're, uh, we're 100 episodes in. Absolutely amazing. So cool. So to market, we've got something really special. We've got Jeff Solzenstein with us. Now, hopefully I just got Jeff's name right. I'll let you be the judge of that. I struggled with it a bit at the beginning of the episode, as you're going to find out. But this is super exciting and, and, and a bit different. Linny McGiven introduced us to Jeff um, after she was really impacted by a talk that he was giving that she attended live and you know Jeff was a pro tennis player a seriously good tennis player so he has a huge amount to share from his life um, as a pro um, and also his life working with people um, to do it with peak performance um, and just kind of the just helping people to live their best life he's got so many great things to share and Jeff's also here to share from the heart about his brother and his brother's story and it's a really really moving um, story that I think all of us can learn something from so the episode's kind of in two halves the second half jeff talks about his brother so be sure to to hang around for that really impactful episode the whole way through and a great way to celebrate 100 of these episodes (laughs) um as you can tell i'm a little bit excited so i'll best shut up now and just hand over to uh to me ellie and jeff so without further ado i will do that love you all you're all rock let's go Ah, uh, amazing. Hey team, this is a long time coming and um, I've ca- we've got Jeff with us now. I'm just about to try and pronounce Jeff's. He's been training me how to pronounce his uh, his surname. So it's Jeff Solzenstein. Is that right? Got it right. It's close. It's Saul. Oh. Can, you go, can you give me a Saul? Like, Saul. Instead of Saul? Saul. Saul. Yeah. Saul. Solzenstein. Solzenstein. There we Boom. go. Boom. <laughs> this has been my, my favorite, my favorite episode to record for ages seeing you worry about um, well, pronouncing somebody's surname it's important it's important you got to get these things right <laughs> jeff dude it's so good to have you here i know that we've been talking about this for a while now um and we're really excited to have you here because not only do you have some incredible stuff to share around alcohol which we talk about a lot but also your professional life as a as a tennis player i know that you were you know, a seriously good tennis player so we'd love to hear about that um and then also some really powerful stuff to share about uh, your brother and his journey um as well so thank you for coming and um we're really excited to have you here man thank you for having me it is a pleasure and i am so looking forward to diving in and and just helping the audience and sharing stories and strategies to to help us all ha- lead better healthier lives yeah. yeah, awesome. We're all about that. We should also just say that this is this is brought to us um, thanks to Linny, oh, yeah, our good friend course. Linny. You nearly missed missed her out. Sorry, this is why I don't do intros. <laughs> 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 thanks, Linny. Yeah, it's it's um yeah, it's lovely to be introduced, particularly when we know that Linny was really impacted and touched by mm. you know your shares when when she 
when she saw you uh, talking and speaking. So that's really amazing. Thank you. Um, so, man, I like. I don't know where it makes sense to start. You know, wherever makes sense to you. If you want to talk about your own personal journey, um, then then go for it. Like, just yeah. just fill us in. I like to start in the middle of the story. Oh, I do that. Let's start right in the middle. Love okay. It. It's 1997. I'm playing a second round U.S. Open night match in front of 24,000 people in Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is the big stadium at the U.S. Open. Millions of people watching on TV. John McEnroe, the, probably the most famous tennis personality in the world, is announcing the match. I'm playing world number two, Michael Chang. And I'm this upstart professional tennis player. I had just graduated from Stanford University a year earlier. It's my first opportunity on the big stage. And I'm playing in front of these millions of people. And I find myself up five games to four in the first set. And I'm serving for the first set. And I have set point, which means I'm one point away from winning the first set off of Michael Chang, a Grand Slam champion. And I hit this beautiful wide slice serve. I come into the net. I hit a beautiful backhand volley to the open court. Chang's one of the fastest guys in the world. He can't reach it. I win the first set. The crowd absolutely erupts. Uh, John McEnroe is saying, you know, who is this guy? Where did he come from? This lefty from Stanford, just like me. And the TV cameras catch me as I'm kind of backing up after I win this point and I win the first set and I've got a little smirk on my face and I'm looking to my box with my family and my friends saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm really here in this moment. And I have this little smirk and that's when I tell people the match ended. And the reason that the match ended <clears throat> is that the dominant thought in my mind in that moment was, thank God you didn't embarrass yourself tonight. And I like to start with that story because I believe that it shares uh, a lot about mindset, a lot about mm. beliefs, uh, equal parts extraordinary. You know, here I am on this big stage doing something mm. that, you know, 0.1% of the world can even get to. Mm. But in the same breath, I'm ordinary, just like a, another human being with limiting beliefs and things that are holding us back. Mm -hmm. Now, I ended up losing that match in four sets, and it was an entertaining match. And guess what? I didn't embarrass myself. But I certainly didn't keep my foot on the gas and dominate and take down Michael Chang and win that match. And I think it just really speaks to our beliefs, our beliefs about how we see the world, what holds us back. And I know we're going to talk about alcohol and get into, into how our beliefs around alcohol impact choices that we make. So as a mindset coach, as an executive coach, as a performance coach, I'm always trying to help people question or challenge their beliefs. And I always like to st start with that story because it takes us right into the middle of the scene of of what I did for a living. And then obviously there's backstory behind it, how I even got to that point. And then there's a lot of stuff that came after that as well. Mm. Mm. My goodness me. Yeah, that's an amazing, I mean, to have experienced that, pretty amazing, very cool. And like, I love how you put that, the kind of, the the extraordinary element of that. And then the also, you know, the things that we all have, the the internal battles that we have, the the kind of limiting beliefs, the stuff that 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 can hold us back. And well, hey, I love that you started in the middle. Like, <laughs> where do we go from there? <laughs> we can go anywhere you want. We can go before, we can go after. Well, where you want does me it... to pick? Yeah, we yeah, man. Well, like here's sure. I would absolutely love to know. And I mean, I know 
like I said before, I think the story of you overcoming so many of the things that you've had to overcome in order to get to that level of performance is, is deeply interesting, but you know, are there leading up to that? What, what was the role that alcohol had? What was the role of Mm. like using that as a way to kind of either, you know, how did that marry with, with that life? Did it marry with that life or was it, was it not around at that point? So, so leading up to that moment when I was 23 years old on that big stage, uh, I grew up in Colorado Uh, My parents were tennis players. I was holding a tennis racket when I was two years old. My parents Mm -hmm. divorced at an early, I was at, I was four years old. And I always tell people, I think I made the decision when I was four years old for me to get love and for me to be validated and for me to uh, be seen in the world as I was just going to be great. I was just going to be perfect. I was going to be the 4-0 student, get all A's in school. I'm going to have my shirt buttoned up like it is now. Right now, I'm not tucked in, but my mom tucked in my shirt. Uh, everywhere I went, I was like the, the perfect child, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I think others, through a divorce or some things in life, they may have chosen a different path. They may have chosen to maybe get in trouble to get attention. And so for me, I just found sport. I found academics. And I excelled at a young age in tennis. I was a national champion by age 12. Uh, at 15 and a half, I was five foot four, 102 pounds, and I could barely see over the steering wheel. And that's when my junior tennis ranking went like this. So I went from being number one in the country at 12 to dropping like this. And again, 15 and a half years old, that's a pivotal defining moment where you may quit tennis or back off and then start hanging out with your friends. And maybe you start drinking a little bit, whatever. Mm-hmm. I didn't do that. I refocused and said, listen, I, my dream is to go to Stanford. I uh, had a dream since a, a goal since I was 12 years old. So I was manifesting before I even knew what manifestation was. Sure. And I just rededicated myself, got back to the top of the rankings and ended up going to Stanford, got a college scholarship to Stanford. And during that time, the first time I ever got drunk was the night after we lost the high school state tennis championships. And I've never told this story publicly. I've told to my friends, but I remember I was the last one of my friends to get drunk. So I was always, again, the the squeaky clean guy doing all the, doing all the right things. And uh, I remember getting drunk that night and I was very sick. I was on the toilet vomiting. Mm. And my mother walked into the, the bathroom with my friends kind of, helping me. And I looked up and I saw her and I go, Oh my gosh, I'm in so much trouble. And she went back to her bedroom and she came back with a camera and started taking pictures of me. And she was basically laughing. She was smiling. So one, I was shocked that she didn't scold me in that moment. Um, But it was kind of interesting to have a parent who is normally pretty strict. In this case, she was like, Oh, you know, kids just being a kid tonight. I know he's, he's okay. So we fast forward to Stanford. I go to Stanford and, uh, I, I really struggled. I, I, I had a great freshman year, but I struggled because I didn't have a great serve. And, uh, I remember I started drinking a little bit more in college, but again, for me, alcohol was what you did in college. It's what you did kind of as an athlete, but I always kind of had that line like, Hey, I'll play around with it, but I'm I'm not going to let it uh, take control of my life. And I did a pretty good job of that. It was more of a social thing. It was to, uh, for me, drinking was more to have uh, more courage in social situations and really to get the girl. That was 
that was what allowed me to have a little more confidence to be able to go and, and speak to more people, especially, especially women. But honestly, I can tell you that I was more on the side with alcohol where uh, it never really took control of my life. Um, the times when I really struggled uh, with it, probably in my early 20s, is after I played Chang. And what happened there, and again, it never really became a problem per se, but three months after I played Chang, I hurt my ankle in an off-season training session. And it was misdiagnosed for eight months. So now I wasn't playing tennis. I was back home in Denver. I had graduated from college and my friends were all going out to the bars. And I found myself in this really confusing place where for six weeks I would train hardcore like a Zen monk and eat really well and train. And then for the next six weeks, I'd be going to the bars three or four nights a week because I was injured and I didn't really have that training as a, as a boundary. Um, and so I kind of picked it up there. It took about 18 months where I was in and out of that. Um, but certainly I didn't have someone in my life to tell me the dangers or how it could hurt my performance. It was just kind of what everyone did 25 years ago, which I'm dating myself now sharing that information, but we didn't have all of this awareness around mm -hmm. alcohol-free lifestyle then. And um, again, it never really was a problem for me, but it's certainly when I look back on it, I, I would have done it differently. Yeah. Well, that's a really powerful share because I know that me and Ellie both, we absolutely love it when people come on and say, this may not have been put into a typical problem category, but I can reflect and I can see the impact it had regardless and the, you know, and, and how that can be. So, so what happened? So interesting that you mentioned that kind of that game as a, as a, like in retrospect is something that really, there was a shift there, something changed and you found yourself. And I mean, I guess injury for any sports person, if your, your sense of meaning is so caught up in that and then that gets taken away, then, you know, that's, that's something that we have to process in our own way. And if we haven't been given the tools to do that, then we, you know, we may be more prone to lean into, into things that perhaps aren't, aren't that helpful, but, but what's the, how, where did it go from there? Because I know that you, I know that you were a really, you know, you, you ranked really highly in when you were 30, I believe you got to, um, a hundred in the world, which is you mm -hmm. know unbelievable. So what was that journey then? Was it a journey through, through injury and then, you know, finding that, um, that energy again, or like what happened across that period of, of your life? Sure. So the, the event of playing Michael Chang, and then the next day I'm signing with an agent with IMG. Mm. Everyone thinks I'm the hot and now player. Three months later, I've got an ankle injury. Eight months after that, I have ankle surgery. I rehab the ankle for six months. I come back to play my first match in the, in the Miami open and I felt a click in the back of my knee, a pain in the back of my knee. And I ended up having knee surgery. So by the time I was 25 years old, my body was completely failing me. And again, another defining moment. When we look back at my junior career, when I had the defining moment, kind of skipped over my college defining moment where I went and transformed my serve because I wasn't going to play pro tennis in college at the level that I was at. And one summer I transformed my serve and that elevated me to the top of the college ranks, and that allowed me to even play uh, Michael Chang and get on the tour. So it was almost an accidental transformation, uh, mm. an accidental pro career. It wasn't really mm. part of the plan. Uh, but when I had these injuries and these surgeries, I'm 25 years old, and I seriously considered quitting because my body was failing me. But at that time, I made another decision. 
I just I decided to study all things high performance. And so looking at where I'm at now, I'm 49 years old. I'll be 50 in October at the time of this recording. I I just started studying everything, you know, the physical body, injury prevention, mindset, uh, spirituality, um, nutrition, biomechanics. And I and I sought out these incredible experts. And so I've been immersed in performance for 25 years. And so I came back from these injuries uh, stronger, healthier, and uh, mentally, emotionally, and physically. And I learned a lot of really cool tools that I teach now, 25 years later. And who knew? I didn't know what I was going to be doing when I was 25 years old. And to to look back on my life and know that I was building this foundation uh, was really powerful. Now, during that time, again, you know, going through that process, I would say I was still a binge drinker in that, you know, every couple of weeks, every month, uh, you know, I go out with the boys or I go out, you know, go out with, have a date or whatever it was. And, and I would maybe drink too much. Um, and, and I think about the mornings I would wake up and then it would affect my training and you're young. You can kind of bounce back faster than you can when you're, when you're older, but certainly there was probably a belief that, well, if I, if I don't drink on these nights, what am I going to do. Like, I'm just going to sit home and it felt weird for me to go out with people and then to not drink alcohol. Now I will say, because I was so immersed in performance, I would on Friday and Saturday nights, instead of going to the pubs or the bars, I would actually go to like health food stores and read food labels, but that's just so quirky. It's so weird. And that's not normal. And so I've kind of lived the life. I'm a bit of a loner in that respect, um, and so I embraced that, but it also was a bit of a lonely existence. I, existence. I didn't really have a community in my 20s where I could kind of do some of the fun, spiritual, nutrition, health stuff. And so I, again, I felt like I was always kind of in between, like, do I go out and have fun or do I stay home and hermitize? And I probably, I was probably more of a hermit than going out, but I would use that going out as a bit of a, a social outlet. Yeah. So you said something really interesting before you said about how, when you were four, you made this decision that you were just going to excel at everything. And then sort of later in your career, you, you know, there's all these kind of really powerful points where you decide, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, and and you choose again, effectively. So Mm -hmm. that energy of I'm going to be excellent. I'm going to excel. Has that always been a positive for you or have there been times in where that's come to, to get you and you've had to move through that as well. It's a great question. I think, you know, I've always been very driven. Uh, I think my parents, it was, that's another reason why I've been involved in tennis for so long. You know, I, I went through my tennis career. I broke the top 100 in the world at, at 30. I still had a lot of injuries. I think part of my career, my identity as an athlete was the, was from the, in, the injuries I experienced. I built a successful online tennis instruction platform. We've helped millions of people around the world it's called tennis evolution. And so I've been in tennis for a really long time since I was four years old. And I think one of the reasons is because internally I was so driven. Mm. My parents had to hold me back. Nobody had to push me. So I think having that internal drive to, to go after something is a positive, right? It, it keeps you, it can keep you on the straight and narrow. Now the dark side or the shadow side of it is again, your identity gets so wrapped up into what you do or working hard. 
and being able to turn off the mind and just be, you know, that's a challenge for me uh, to do that because I'm wired just to take action. So when people say, you know, you know, when you want to achieve your goals, Hey, you just got to take action. You just got to take the steps. That's not a problem for me. I'm always going to get out there and, and take the necessary steps. But I think that can, if you don't have that balance of, you know, getting out of your head and into your body and into your heart and being able to slow down, which I'm learning, I continue to learn. And obviously I'm a coach. So I want to embody all of that to be able to take people to higher levels. So I have to live it myself. But I think it, there is a shadow side to it when you really look deeper of like, well, where does that come from? And what is that need or that desire to be validated, to be approved of, to be liked by the world, um, to really care what other people think? Uh, I think that's the part that has uh, probably been a challenge for me internally. And, and how do I show up in the world instead of when I go out in the world, even today, you know, I'm going to go play tennis and I'm going to go to the club and people are still talking about like, oh yeah, that's Jeff Salzenstein. He did this. I don't want to be known as the guy that was top hundred in the world. It's a great thing to get your foot in the door, but just to be uniquely me, to be human, to really feel comfortable in my own skin is something that I think is important for all of us to really understand that we're so much more than our achievements. And that's one reason I work with successful business leaders, especially men, um, you know, a lot of men and even women, if they're in that world of success and achievement, that is how they define themselves, you know, how much money they make or their, their status or their title. And so I come from it of that, from that angle of, gosh, I did achieve some really cool things and I'm also not that person. Let me kind of show you the frameworks and, and how I, how I navigated that and the work that I did to get to a place where I have more peace with just being who I am. So I don't know if I answered your question, no, you did. but, but uh, we went into some, some, some places there that were interesting that I didn't know we were going to go there. Well, no, I really appreciate that. I didn't know I was going to ask the question, um, <laughs> but it kind of occurred to me as something I was really curious about. Um, and I, you know, thank you for being so honest and sharing that because I think um, that energy. Yeah, exactly. It can definitely be, underneath that there can sometimes be stuff to see and stuff to learn and i love the fact that you know as coaches um you know we have to be able to honor oh, we're not we're not fully cooked right and like we're on our own journey and that stuff's so important so people are going to really resonate with that i know well well look hey before we uh, we we would love to hear a bit about your brother's journey it's, it's super important for you to be able to share that today what is there a segue is there a bridge where do you sit with alcohol now does it have a role in your life like what, what what's happening there and then perhaps we can connect that into into your brother's journey and his story it's yeah it's fascinating with my journey because um right now in this moment i'm alcohol free i have not touched a, a drink of alcohol in we just crossed the four-year mark wow Good for you. And thank you. And uh, what was interesting again is I would describe myself up until that point as a very light drinker, you know, and again, we all have different definitions of what a light drinker is. But for me, especially leading up to that moment when I decided to do a 30 day alcohol free challenge, I would say I would average maybe two drinks a week. So we're at eight a month. And what I realized is that was, again, based around the social construct at the time that I made the decision, I was single. 
and I was on the dating apps and I would go out on dates. And typically I would drink because the person that I was with would order a glass of wine. So it was for me to actually, it was more about them, right? Let me make them feel comfortable. Let me not think that there's something wrong with me because again, immediately, especially even on the dating apps, uh, if you put on your profile, you're alcohol free, all of a sudden there's judgments around, well, what roads this guy been down, you know? Um, or even just telling people that you don't drink alcohol. I have people say, Oh, you know, you're in recovery. And I'm like, well, no, uh, but I'm alcohol free. That's the term that I prefer to use. So, uh, so I made that decision about four years ago and it, it, again, it stemmed around performance. I went to a seminar and he talked all about the, the implications of, of continuing to drink, the, uh, um, what it's costing you, right? The amount of money, the amount of time, the productivity, the results, your health. And I just, I already knew all this information, but it really just struck a chord that weekend. And I just came home. I did a 30 day uh, challenge with myself, nobody else. And then I did another 30 and another 30. And by 90 days, I was like, ah, I don't need to do anymore. So it's really been very empowering for me to uh, embrace this as a performance coach and have it be part of my framework that I don't push on anyone, but I say, listen, one of the biggest health hacks is to not drink. It literally is the biggest health hack in the world. And what's so crazy to me is out in the world, we're, we're, we're looking at all these other hacks and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, let's just not put the poison in the body. So the segue that I'll give you is I break the top 100 at age 30 but it was for it was literally for like a cup of coffee at 100 in the world and then i dropped right back down i had a lot of injuries during that time i had plantar fasciitis i had a shoulder i had a groin the body was definitely thing things that i struggle with and uh, i remember i was really going through a, a tough time i'm 33 34 years old and i don't want to get on planes anymore to go to tournaments i'm not feeling inspired to practice anymore that's a sure tell sign that something is off, uh, burned out, stressed out, uh, tired, uh, probably down on myself because I wasn't achieving the goals that I thought that I could in tennis. So that goes back to that perfectionism and having to be perfect to the world and then feeling like you fall short, super painful. And I remember going to visit my family in Florida. So my father remarried and had three children. And they're much younger than I. Uh, my my half brother Eric uh, was 17 years old at the time, so I was 17 when he was born. Uh, he was 17 when I went to go visit them around New Year's Eve of 2007, and I remember walking into his room, and I was still on the tour, uh, kind of taking a break. I was having some health issues, but I was kind of waiting for those health issues to improve. And I remember going down there, and I walked into his room sprawled out on the floor, passed out a white foamy substance coming out of his mouth. My brother was overtaken by a cocktail of drugs. He was mixing and matching and he was addicted. And in that moment, my pro tennis career ended. In that moment, uh, I became a coach. Uh, In that moment, I started feeling a deeper sense of fulfillment by serving others. I rushed him to the hospital uh, within six days, I had borrowed $36,000 that I didn't have to put him into re- rehab. Uh, I hired an interventionist to come down and talk to the family. 
And I got him into a, a rehab facility in Louisiana. I went to visit him and then I drove home to Colorado and I announced to the world where I grew up, I'm a tennis coach now. And so talk about a defining moment mm. that on one hand, I was waiting to go back on the tour. My head wanted to go play tennis. My heart was done, but I wasn't listening to my heart. My brother lying on the floor, that was the moment. And I, I always tell people, if I wasn't there, if my father would have called me and said, your brother OD'd, he's in the hospital, he's going to be okay. If that would have happened uh, on a phone call, who knows? But the fact that I visibly saw my brother lying in this state, and I knew the people around me weren't capable of really doing it the level that I could. I'm the action taker. I make shit happen. Um, I made it happen. I moved home and I started coaching and built a successful coaching business in tennis and then the online and what have you. And so that really began the journey with my brother of, of his journey around alcohol and drugs, where I was deeply involved with his process, with his success, with his triumphs, and with also with his failures and with his struggles. So I'll stop there uh, because I'm sure there's questions. And then obviously I can pick up kind of what happened next in this story. God, it's, it's fascinating hearing this. God, there's been so many things already that just really stand out. And that that whole thing that you described about like being your achievements like that is the belief that I've carried around my entire life. And um, I'm I'm still unpicking that to a degree, you know, the origins of it. And then, um, you know, that I have moments where I see what's what's real and it, it blasts through it, but it still will come and tap me on the shoulder every now and again. So it's just, it's fascinating hearing you talk about, like I I laughed when you said about like, I, I get shit done because that that is me all over. Like I get stuff yeah. done, but... There, there is a price attached to it also. And I there's something really special about that, the, the divine hand that takes you to that moment where you are with your brother when he needs you the most. And, and that changes everything for you. Like that coming from heart. Like I, I remember for so long I was chasing this, like I knew that I was meant to be doing something else. I knew that I was meant to be doing something else, but could I, because I'm the doer, I'm trying to find the thing. I'm trying to desperately uncover the, well, what is the thing? And the more that I strived for it, the more elusive it was. And it was in this moment of surrender that, oh, there's the thing. There's the thing. Like when you're open hearted, there's the thing. So I just like, what a beautiful story. It's incredible. Mm. Thank you. You know, I think that, um, Thank you for sharing that. I think that women, I'm going to be a little bit biased here, but I think women have a better handle on what you just described in general, being able to surrender, being able to open the heart. You know, men, we're not really taught to do that. We just have to go out there and conquer the world and stuff our emotions down. And what's really interesting about my journey is that I played at the highest level of tennis and I competed, you know, alpha dog. And I do think that I do think I would have been top 10 in the world or top 20 in the world with my athletic ability and with my mindset. And if I was more of a killer, if I was more like Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant or some of the other killers that are on the pro tour, but there was a conflict. I think there was an internal unconscious conflict that I had this side of me that was ultra competitive, but I also had this really deep spiritual side and I was studying spirituality and mindset and Zen and Buddhism and 
and Qigong and Tai Chi when I was 24 years old as a pro tennis player 25 years ago. And so I think that it's a really unique blend combination, again, as a coach that I can speak to a business leader who's a high achiever and say, listen, I know what you're experiencing. I get that. And there's this whole other side to unpack. You know, where does this come from? The childhood adversities, the childhood trauma and trauma doesn't have to be something crazy difficult. You know, my parents, even though they divorced, they got along, but I do believe the divorce and then obviously the way my parents were available to me emotionally uh, impacted how I, how I am in the world. And uh, I just, I've gone on the deep journey myself and continue to, I have a, I have a personal coach now helping me heal my childhood adversity. I have a relationship coach with the woman that I'm with. We, we are working on our skills and a relationship. And then I have a speaker coach. So I have three coaches right now that are coaching me and it's all designed for me to keep up-leveling my game, but also to know myself so that I can show up in a really powerful way uh, for others on this podcast, uh, who I'm going to meet in the next hour, uh, anything that I do, and just really knowing myself. And, and I really, I think tapping into the heart is is very important. And I, I realized that with my brother, you know, helping him in that moment, putting the things in place for success. I'm really good at that. I can help people kind of put things in place for them to create success. And what was interesting is my first month of coaching in Colorado, all these kids on a tennis court, I realized I was like, oh my gosh, I love this so much more than I loved even playing Michael Chang at the US Open. I had so much anxiety real, you know, playing Chang that day, wondering if I was going to embarrass myself in front of the world. And now I'm just giving, I'm just helping other people achieve their goals. And I really do get more fulfillment out of that. So my brother was the ultimate story for me of my ultimate student, if you will, or brother that I could guide and I could help when he was ready on a journey. And I got, I had so much more fulfillment out of that than I did playing tennis. That's um, yeah. That kind of heart to heart thing. It's, I mean, there aren't words for that. It's, it's beautiful. Well, Dude, I know that Eric's journey, you know, was wasn't simple, right? And you've 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 shared. No. I'm going to link to the TEDx that you shared with me um, in the show notes for people to be able to watch. Um, but yeah, you know, with the, with the remaining time that we've got together, what do you want to share for Eric? What do you want people to know um, from his story? And you know, just just please just <clears throat> go in whatever way makes sense to you. I will. So so Eric goes to rehab. He's 17 years old. Uh, the rehab place I wanted to put him in was in Colorado, but they wouldn't accept him because he wasn't 18 yet. So I had to find a place that would put him uh, as a 17 year old, as a minor. And so he goes for 90 days and then he comes to live with me in Colorado. So I said, Hey, let's not go back to Florida. I moved home to Colorado where I grew up. We grew up in different households. I bought a home. I was basically going to raise, you know, raise him. We were going to do this together and he stayed with me for three months. And then I figured out he started using again. And I was coached. I was told, listen, you know, tell him he's got five days, seven days to find another place to live. If he's not, if he's not going to go back to the facility, if he's not going to be clean with you, he has to be out of the house within a week. And so he ended up going back to Florida to live with his parents, my, my father and my stepmother and my two sisters. And the next five years was an absolute destruction zone. Um, 
drug use, drug dealing, uh, you know, obviously lying, stealing, um, arrests, in and out of rehab, in and out of jail. Uh, and I wasn't in touch with him much. Uh, at that point, you know, I drew a pretty hard line that, listen, if you're going to live that life, I'm living my life. When you're ready, I'll always be here, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. So I'd get updates from my father. Ultimately, my brother committed two felonies within a couple months of each other when he was about 23. And he was supposed to get a, a life term in prison if he was convicted for these two felonies for armed robbery, drug deal gone bad. And two weeks before he was going to be sentenced, he the 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 prosecuting attorney quit and got married. And she was going to throw the book at him. So when he when she quit, the new prosecuting attorney came in and knew his the public defender and they they copped a plea deal. So he ended up getting a, a four year term. So he had basically prayed and said, listen, whatever God's supposed to give me, that is the that's what I'm supposed to get. So he got four years in a maximum security prison in Florida. At this point, again, I wasn't really in touch with him. And about halfway through his prison term, maybe about a year in, he called me one day from prison. And he said, Jeff, he had just spent about 50 days in solitary confinement because he had gotten in a fight with a gang member. I mean, it's a whole different culture going to prison. Sure. This guy's from the suburbs. He's, he, you know, his mom taught him God. His dad taught him sports. Like my brother was not supposed to be in prison. Like that's just not how it was supposed to go. And so he was in solitary confinement. He called me one day and he said, Jeff, I really want to change but I don't know how. The only life I know is the drug life, the thug life, the cool life. And I said, okay. And I sent him two books. I sent him the four-hour work week because I wanted to teach him entrepreneurship. I wanted to get his mind thinking. And then I sent him Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And he read that book cover to cover. And he developed an, his entire world changed. He transformed his thinking. He created a value system. He started mentoring inmates. He started teaching classes. He started cleaning the toilets at 5 a.m. He started going to the, the prison yard to, to do pull-ups and push-ups. And he just became this Adonis physically, started praying and meditating and journaling. And we were doing calls every week from prison. I was coaching him from prison. And, and uh, when he got out <clears throat> um, four years later, we were all obviously very happy. Uh, very relieved. But when he got out and he was in work release, he started drinking right away. And I said, Eric, that's a terrible idea. Like, don't do it. And I was adamant that he not drink, but obviously, you know, he's 27 years old. He's a grown man. He can make the decisions and he justified it. He said, listen, I made the transformations. I'm good. Uh, I can have a couple drinks and, and I'll be fine. And I said, you know, I just, I don't even play with that. Don't play that game. And for the first three years out of prison, overall, I think he did a pretty darn good job. Now, I come to find out that maybe it wasn't as good a job as I thought, but uh, he, he drank. I don't know how much he drank. I wasn't living with him, but we worked together where I helped him. I got him in the rooms with a lot of top marketers and business coaches and he was, he was dominating. He was on Instagram with mindset and, and, and getting people pumped up. And he built a, a business coaching, online business coaching business from scratch. Within 18 months, he went from zero to $70,000 a month, months. 
And it was unheard of how fast he just shot up. And that included him winning a speaking contest. He had realized that he had a talent for public speaking in prison. And then we got him into a big contest in Colorado, actually. And out of 600 participants, he won, which gave him the TED Talk. And uh, he just had this gift. He was a networker. He was an extrovert. Uh, People loved to be around him. He had really good energy. And through that process, I stayed very close to him. And then about a year before his business just took off, I started noticing that a lot of ego was starting to come into play. I didn't feel as connected. And I remember coming back from a trip. It was March of 2020, one week before the pandemic hit. And I came back to my girlfriend. I said, something's different. I'm not vibing with him. Like I'm going to have to pull away. I always kind of sensed it. And from that point on, he got another coach and his career went like this in the first year, six months. And then I finally got a call one day from his girlfriend about six months after, actually four months, five months after that. It was in August of 2020. I was on vacation with my girlfriend and, and, and her children. And she said, yeah, he's using drugs now. And so the alcohol, I think, started increasing as the stress increased, um, you know, him not maybe dealing with his trauma, his anxieties, what he experienced in prison, what he experienced in his previous life. And he was just trying to like be successful. And, and he thought he had the foundation, but he didn't really have the foundation. And he started using serious drugs. And that was about two and a half years ago. And I just watched this downward spiral, uh, watched it happen. It was like this upward trajectory for about two and a half years. And then for two and a half, it was like this. And um, ultimately, uh, three months ago, actually two and a half months ago, um, he overdosed and he died on January 11th of this year. I'm so sorry to hear that, man. Thank you. And I know that, um, you know, this kind <clears throat> of stuff is 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 hard to talk about, but I know how it how important it is for you to come and tell his story. Because, you know, like anyone, underneath all of his troubles and is just this light that we all have. Like, and he he was just doing what made sense to him. He was trying to do, like, doing the best he could with what he had, right? And and it just, I mean, for me, it goes to show that the beautiful journey that we can go on if when we do, if we do find the courage to be alcohol free for a while or whatever it might be is incredible. And it's, it's such a turning point for people. And, um, yeah, thank Just thank you for coming and sharing that. Yeah. Thank you for letting me, uh, you know, I told you before we started that if, if my story and if Eric's story can save a life or help change a life for the better, uh, that's, that's why I wake up every morning. It aligns with what I do. It aligns with what I do as a performance coach, and when I say performance coach, I'm really, you know, a health coach, a life coach, uh, whatever you want to, a coach. I'm just helping people. Hey, if you want to have, if you want to improve your life, if you want to change, I will help you. I, I, mm-hmm. this is what I want to do. And with my brother, it was my greatest success story. Uh, my greatest transformation that I witnessed in a client in a, in a brother, you know, he was for a stretch there. He was my best friend. I was his biggest fan. I was his mentor. I was his coach. When he won that speaking contest, there's a picture on Facebook, uh, you know, just the warm embrace, you know, I'm just hugging him. And, and in that moment, that was one of the greatest, 
one of the greatest moments of my life was seeing him win that contest because I've won my whole life. You know, I've won high school state championships. I won national championships at Stanford. I played in Wimbledon in the U S open. I've always been a winner. Uh, I just win. And, uh, he didn't win a lot. So when he won, that was really powerful for me. Um, when he won that contest and watching him succeed when he was so down and out and watching how you know, he always used to say, listen, if a guy, if, if a guy, if a convicted felon in a six by eight prison cell can transform his life, you can do it too. Anybody can do it. And, you know, obviously I have, there's a few things I wish were different. You know, I wish he wasn't so stubborn and he would have listened to me and just said, okay, I have the blueprint for you. If you just like stick with me on this, if we just stick together on this, you're going to go all the way. Like you will go all the way, like wherever you're, you're going to go do some incredible things. And, you know, the mind is, is a powerful thing. And I have theories around it. You know, he was diagnosed with ADD at nine years old. And, uh, I felt really strongly even 20 years ago that he should not be put on medication. He was put on Ritalin at nine years old. Everyone again was doing the best they can making the decisions that they could in that moment. But, I believe strongly that he shouldn't. And I believe that starting on that path changed his brain, changed how he saw the world, changed how he could kind of relate to the world. And some people can take medications and, and ADHD medications and be okay. Others can't. And um, in his case, I think it led, it was like a gateway, you know, and then when he was 13, he was smoking pot and he was drinking. And, you know, that's how he covered covered how, how he dealt with his pain. And I wish when he would have got out of prison that he would have said, you know what, I'm not going to drink and I'm going to create boundaries and I'm going to create structure in my life. But that was really tough for him. You know, he really wanted to do it his way. Hmm. And, um, he, I always would hear him tell me around alcohol that he could see himself not using other drugs, but he could never see himself Mm -hmm not using alcohol, like the thought of like, for the rest of my life, I'm never going yeah. to drink. And I'm sure that's a, a common <clears throat> theme or phrase or things that you all hear when you're exploring the alcohol or alcohol-free lifestyle. But when I would hear that, you know, it was, it was tough for me because again, it's, it's easy for me not to drink. Um, so it's so interesting, this, this paradox of, of me, the golden child and, and, uh, Eric, the the black sheep, we we talked about how we were going to be on stages with our keynote, sharing how our stories are so different. The all-American kid at Stanford, and then the kid, the prison convict, and we're on a stage together, and we're teaching the exact same principles, how we created success or how we transformed in our different ways. Because I've transformed my life in different ways, um, but he obviously transformed in a much bigger way, you know, and Um, one regret that I have that I want to make sure that I, the point that I drive home, I think I did a really pretty darn good job supporting my brother. Uh, I had to hold boundaries when he was using that I couldn't Mm. be involved in his life. Um, but in learning more about the disease and that obviously we know Eric was much more than his addictions. Um, I drew a hard line where. I wish if I could do it over again, I would have texted him once a month and just said, I love you just because 
I think that, you know, in many ways, my love, and I'm just being vulnerable here, my love was conditional in that if he was using, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. And that probably really hurt him and really stung him to know that, you know, he knew that I loved him, but I really kind of drew that kind of parental boundary of like, I'm just, no, you know, army, military kind of approach. And I just wish I would have told him more that I loved him regardless of his use. And that I wouldn't have even have brought up, Hey, are you going to get, are you going to do this program? You're going to get clean because the addict doesn't want to talk about those things. Um, you know, they, they just don't, they, they want to know that they're loved and they want to know that they're supported. It doesn't mean you have to be in their life. It doesn't mean you have to enable them, but I wish I would have done that differently. And going forward, obviously I have my radar on that. And I think, you know, addiction and, and people that struggle with addiction really, um, you know, there's a stigma attached and they feel a lot of shame. And I think if we can find ways to make them feel loved, yeah. uh, that would be, that would make the world a better place. Mm. Wow. That was, um, I had a number of things I was going to ask you. You just answered them all. I did a much better <laughs> job. Job. I, and I know we're really short on time, man, but I just want to just really kind of evoke that, that image of you with your bro on stage you know, in, in what you're doing, you're on stage with him right here now, right? You're sharing his story. I'm really touched by it. I really just want to say a huge thank you for coming and sharing your story, Eric's story. Uh, and, you know, whatever it is you see and realize, like this is a platform for you to be able to come and share whenever, you know, just reach out. And, I, and I'm sure that we'll stay in touch. And it's just, it's just so lovely to have you here sharing that, man. Thank you. I, I just thought of something else I want to share. And I know we, we have to wrap up here, but um, he died on January 11th of 2023. We were not in touch. We were estranged for over a year. We had a big falling out, uh, because of, you know, the drug use. And, um, you know, again, I wish I would have texted him and said, you know, I love you uh, more often. And I wish he would have known that. I know he did know that because I did so many other things, you know, along the journey, right. Um, to try to put him in position to be healthy and successful. But two weeks after, um, two weeks after he died, I gave a, a speech to a company where Lenny met me. And it was the first time that I had shared at the end of the talk that my brother had passed away and spoke about his transformation. So I wrote him into my talk two weeks after and that brought Lenny into my life and brought you all into my life. So what's happening now is because of my brother, I am getting on podcasts and, and getting into rooms and getting around people that I would have never normally met. And yeah. so it's opening up a whole world of healing and growth. And uh, two days after that talk that I gave to Lenny's company, uh, I, I gave Eric's eulogy. And uh, I wrote his eulogy and I read it in the church. It was a beautiful ceremony. And, uh, you know, the last couple of months have been challenging, but also because I'm a forward thinking, I just keep thinking, man, like I was already going to be this aspiring and, and successful keynote speaker and coach, but now I get to share my brother's story and, that, and his legacy and the positivity. And again, if we can create change and we can get people to really embrace an alcohol-free lifestyle, it's just so much better. 
it is just so much better to wake up every day to sleep well, to to feel healthy, uh, to be focused, to be able to stand in your power, yeah. like and to change your thoughts, to change your unconscious mind, to actually believe um, that this is this is the way to go and this is an empowering way to live. Mm. And uh, I'm so passionate about it. So thank you for the opportunity to come on today and to share my story. And if anyone wants to reach out to me, if they're touched by this story and they want to learn more, if they think I might be able to support them in any way, um, they can go to my website at jeffsalzenstein.com. They can email me at jeff at jeffsalzenstein.com. And one of the things that I'm doing now is I'm giving my phone number out. You can WhatsApp me or you can send me a text because if there's someone out there that's really struggling and they just need to, to talk to someone or they need to be referred somewhere where they can get the support they need, they can call me. And so uh, it's uh, you, I'm in the U S so it's um, country code one. And then three Oh three is the area code eight, eight, two, nine, zero, two, eight. If you want to put all that information in the show notes, you can, oh, we will. but I want to make sure that uh, you know, I don't want people to suffer in silence. And I, and I think my brother, he was so out there in the world as a success story on Instagram and everyone saw it, but I knew what was going on behind the scenes and I knew he was suffering. And I just don't want people to suffer and I want people to live a really happy, healthy life. And it starts with getting alcohol, in my opinion, getting alcohol out of, out of your life and really embracing a healthy lifestyle without alcohol. Yeah. Like you said, it's the ultimate, the ultimate hack, the ultimate hack. hack. Yes. You know it, dude, (laughs) what a conversation amazing thank you so so much and um i'll put all that stuff in the show notes i'm sure we'll have you on again um when it makes sense and um, it's been a pleasure having you man thank Thank you. you so much jeff